0: I'm Kay Uffield at the World Economic Forum.
1: And I'm Miriam Vogel with Equal AI. And this is In AI We Trust. Hello, Kay. It's great to see you. Likewise. How are you, Miriam? very well. It's very busy, like I'm sure you're finding as well. Some great talks we're having. I'm talking to the Chamber of Commerce tomorrow about their AI hearings. I had a great time speaking at the VentureBeat conference and the Bipartisan Policy Center has had some really great conversations about AI assessments. And I was really grateful to be part of that conversation. And I'm really grateful to be part of this conversation with you today.
0: Likewise. And at the beginning of summer, I was fortunate enough to spend three days in Las Vegas with HPE at their Discover conference. And of course, they've been great supporters of the Badge program. And so it was really nice to have a number of conversations about responsible AI and how important it is in your business and not just with HPE, but the 5,000, I didn't speak to 5,000 people Um, but with lots of other companies that were represented there.
1: Yeah, it is really exciting to see that this thread of responsible AI is becoming a more common point of discussion among more companies and, Uh, also to have these conversations in person. It's really adding a new lens and new light to this conversation that we like to have weekly.
0: Absolutely. And I'm really looking forward to our conversation today. So tell us something about our guests.
1: Joe Bradley is Chief Scientist at LivePerson. I've known him for a while. He is, I think, somebody our listeners are really going to enjoy hearing from because he is deeply thoughtful and curious. He has a very broad background Ground, from classical singing and English literature to middle school teaching. He is now the chief scientist at Live Person, where he designs their conversational AI. And he's been a very active participant in our badge program that you and I co host on responsible AI governance. So I know it will be a great conversation. Super. I'm looking forward to it. Let's jump in. Welcome back to another episode of An AI We Trust. Joining us this week is Joe Bradley, Chief Scientist at LivePerson. As a B2B enterprise, LivePerson works with some of the world's largest brands, facilitating nearly a billion conversational interactions powered by its conversational cloud monthly, touching millions of people around the world. Many of our listeners are also aware that Rob Lacasio, LivePerson's CEO and founder, is also one of the founders of Equal.ai. So in his role at LivePerson, Joe combines conversational data and the skills of business professionals to teach computers how to talk to people and how to solve problems. Before LivePerson, Joe was senior director handling a variety of data science and other issues at Nike, and before that, head of data and analytics for Amazon Search, and a physicist. Before that, Joe, you've done so many great things. I can't wait to talk with you and hear your insights, and it's just great to see you today.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here and uh, thanks for not bringing up the middle school teaching and the opera singing as well.
1: Well, funny you should say that. That happens to be my next question. Oh no. It (laughs) is like, how can we not start with that? So since you brought it up, (laughs) you have had a fascinating and unconventional career that has included classical singing, English literature, teaching middle school and physics tell us a little bit more about your journey and how it has led to artificial intelligence.
2: Sure, I guess the first point to make is I feel responsibly qualified enough to say that middle school teaching was the hardest job by far um, on pretty much every dimension, amount of work required, level of stress, level of responsibility. Pretty much that was the one that I aspired to someday feel like I'm actually worthy to do. Uh, though trying in the mid 20s was um, definitely exciting and interesting and and you know I learned a ton from it. So let's see, it has been kind of a windy road for me. I think that's been a positive for me. I tend to have a pretty curious sensibility. I, I like to investigate things. I like to learn new things. I like to start new things and, and finish them as well. So I would say it's hard to draw a through line between all of it that I knew it was going where it ended up. But what I think has been beneficial in hindsight is the experience with a broad range of you know, not only people, but also communities of discourse and ways of thinking. I think, you know, one sometimes, you know, some of the greatest scientists that I have worked with that are extremely focused and have had a you know a very focused career, I think sometimes one of the things that can be challenging for people who've been in that position for so long is it can be difficult to understand the perspective of, let's say, a policymaker or a salesperson or someone who really has a valid perspective that impacts your work and how it will go to market and what it will mean to do it. Sometimes there can be a you know kind of a schism there and there, there can be a retreat to the ivory tower and a, a little bit of like, well, if they just dealt with the facts the way that I did, you know kind of a scientific exceptionalism, if you like, that, that's the, the sort of bad side of this. And and I feel fortunate to have had a lot of different experiences and have seen the value in these other communities of discourse to want to look at problems from a variety of different perspectives and find find that intellectually interesting myself. I think that's a practice trait and glad we've acquired it.
0: That's absolutely super to hear. And I never was a classical singer, but I always wanted to. My alternative career was opera singer, but as I was useless at singing, Um, It was never gonna happen. But like you, I have a very varied non-linear career. And I do think that you're right, that it gives us the opportunity to think about different ways of seeing these puzzles that we're having to deal with. So I want to uh, take you back to last year when you gave a keynote at AI Dev World, which you called how AI can make the future more human. And I wondered if you could dig in a little bit for us on what does it mean to make AI human? Yeah. And do you think your wide array of professional experiences that you've just been talking about helps you with that question?
2: Well, I think it's hard to think about it in two contexts. It's like, how do we make AI more human and how do we make business more human in a in a way that we like? And, and sometimes the way that we like, is, an, I feel like it's an important thing to add. I think a really good example of the latter, right? And the, there's sort of a business as a force for good argument that you can make if you go back to like the late 19th century and you look at like the Sears catalog, right? So one of the jokes in the talk was, there's a company that transformed commerce and all of a sudden you could buy anything you wanted from your living room. Of course, we're talking about Sears, right? Not not Amazon, because they did that a hundred years before. Um, but one of the little known aspects of the value of scaling up commerce that Sears did was actually, they helped solve a racial problem that had existed in the South for a long time, right? That, you know, there were a bunch of recently freed Black people who were now sort of sharecropping and had to make their living. And the people that they bought products from were people that were, in many cases, former slave owners, maybe even their former slave owners, right? And so there was a lot of price gouging going on. There was All these problems that in that commercial interaction, that having the catalog allowed buyers to understand what to pay for goods and give them an alternate place to get them right, and it really kind of like helped the situation uh, socially and and economically as well. For me, like that's a good baseline that there's that there are these opportunities for business to to do something meaningful and something good in the world. That there it isn't this dichotomy between capitalism and good behavior, right? Or in, in, you know, positive, wide range of of good outcomes. With that as a preamble, I guess, let me come back to your question a little bit. So what does it mean to make AI more human? I think the first question there is, what is human, right? What does it mean to be human? And and how do we even think about that? And it's very related to the concept of bias in AI, because in, in many ways, what it is to be human is to be biased. Our fundamental unit of thinking You know, essentially the reason we can go around the world and reason about the world and and make make good decisions in it is because we have bias, because we don't have to re-engineer every action from first principles, right? Like I don't have to relearn the English language entirely to understand how you use it. I don't have to, you know, I I have a lot of touchstones in in my day-to-day that help me think. And so for me, making an AI that is human and making an AI that is good right, is a version of like, well, it's not about, you know, kind of destroying the possibility of bias in that AI, because the way we're building these neural net architectures, they inherit a lot of our sort of tendencies for bias for a lot of structural reasons. So it's not about eliminating that possibility. It's really about understanding what biases are there and understanding if we feel those biases are useful, understanding if we feel those lead to fair outcomes or if those are problematic. So in the talk, you know, there's a sort of a lot about the the basic psychology, human bias, and um, there's some great work that leads like into behavioral economics in a really interesting way. So there's I think a lot to a lot we can say about how we communicate with each other, and and what kind of structures we set up dramatically affect economic outputs. So that is maybe the thesis of behavioral economics: is that if you nudge people the right way, you'll get dramatically different results in the long term or in the aggregate based on their natural human biases. And sometimes you can do that for good. So with that as the foundation and the AI providing this additional sense of scale or this additional rather um, ability to scale. And in my case, I care very much about scaling conversations. You know, the, the, the question becomes like, it becomes almost as hard and, and just as important a question of how do we tease out the biases in these AIs that we build in these systems that we create Very, very similar question to how do we tease out and understand and improve the biases, you know, in the systems of governance and business that we create for ourselves as as a society?
1: Fascinating. There is so much I want to ask you about what you just said the connection between conversation. And bias to humanity, to technology, how technology can be the nudge for good or for bad. Uh, just as humans can use bias for good and bad, obviously the technology will have similar directions and. I see it uh, as something you take very seriously as your role, and it's so interesting how conversation, conversational AI, uh, can have such an impact on human interactions, and as you say, how businesses can do good if they are being mindful about this responsibility and this uh, opportunity that they have. So it kind of answers what I was going to ask you about. You know, Live Person, as we know, is a company that develops customer engagement, conversational commerce applications and platforms for a few brands, I think over 18,000 brands. So can you tell us a little bit more about your role specifically? Why did you choose Live Person, And what are you working on right now that we should be excited about?
2: So your stats are correct. We have about 18,000 customers at this point, um, and the customers being brands, and, and they have many, many millions, or I guess, I think hundreds of millions of customers of their own. Um, so we have a you know as you look across the verticals that we support most commonly airlines financial services insurance a whole bunch of big business you know we consistently have between 40 and 70% of fortune 500s on the platform so so that's partially to answer one of your questions so, so like why live person for me that's a tremendous amount of scope and scale you know to to influence and and hopefully to make it into something valuable for all of us I, uh, you know, there's there's something like a billion conversations going on, or rather a billion messages being sent back and forth on the platform uh, every month, and something like a billion conversations happening on the platform every year. Uh, so that that is, I think, we're, we're kind of right in the thick of uh, talking to many, many people from a wide range of backgrounds on, you know, with... Or sort of allowing, I guess, our customers to do, have those conversations. So, so that's very attractive. Of course, as a data scientist, there's a tremendous amount of data in those interactions that allows us to learn really differently than you can without that data. Um, that that's very attractive as well. I think what we, in some way, like sometimes when I put what what value we can have for our for the brands that work with us, I put it in terms of we can help make you. A very customer, a much more customer-centric company than you are today. Um, I feel like the the evolution of brand over the last 15, 20 years, you know, really since the internet kind of got going uh, and got big is, is a lot about you know, meeting customers where they are and becoming really focused on what customers actually want and and what actually helps them. And I think, you know, what makes live role so interesting is that we we give you the tools to do that at scale. Uh, now, there's a good side and a bad side of this, of course. You know, I think a lot of us have have come to believe that, you know, there is a predominant effect in social media that is uh, it can be very damaging to people's psychologies, right? And it can impact people in very negative ways. It can make people feel isolated and alienated from the world and from their friends, right? So, staring at somebody else's great life and feeling like you don't have that is uh, really can be a debilitating experience for a lot of people and and then recurring that experience a lot and then you know tap on adding on top of that a whole you know range of biased media that's algorithmically focused on what they think what what is thought what it's thought you'll click on rather than you know any notion of truth or um, the reality of what the information is saying like that's all yeah you know, that's that's a pretty scary situation that we've managed to create for ourselves. And I think we see, you know global economic fallout from some of that. I think we see political unions um, being challenged by that. I think we see the you know largest governments in the world like struggling, you know more because of those problems. So you know, I hope, and what i what I want to do, what I think is important for for us all to do, is to start to use aspects of technology, you know, to to kind of provide some positive direction, uh, maybe some ballast against some of those darker sides of human behavior. And I think conversations are really interesting medium to do that because, you know, it's a medium that, that we process basically unconsciously, right? I'm talking to you, you can't help but really listen and understand the words that I'm saying in the same way that if you look at English words, you can't help but read them anymore. You know, that's all happening beneath your awareness. Um, And so it is this kind of direct link to the human mind. And it is, you know, also there's there's a ton of studies showing it's a conversation and relationship building are the way that you really move people and, and help people change in both positive and negative ways. So I think providing a platform where brands can focus better on their customers, where they can get closer to their customers, where they can truly understand their customers' needs in their own words um has some has a chance to to you know sort of be a some form of positive effect here and let me give you a specific example so you know one of the conversations on our platform one of my favorite ones uh is a woman reaching out to uh, an e-commerce company a retailer and talking about how she's sorry so a sporting goods sporting apparel company um talking about how she's she's going to run her first 5k and she really wants like she 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 wants to do a good job, but she needs to get kind of outfitted for it. She doesn't know what she needs to run. She's just starting training for it. And she's not very motivated really, but she's doing it because she wants to get in shape for her wedding. This is the way she's describing the situation. And she's talking to a person and, and she's asking for help on these different dimensions. There are a lot of things the company can do to help her. But what I think is, is so, one of the things that's so interesting to me about this is, this is all on the level of here's something that a person decided that they wanted help with from this brand. And they took the action of expressing this opinion, expressing this understanding. And if we use machine learning to understand what this means, we're not inferring something weird about them that they don't actually want us to know. We're simply understanding the words that they're sharing with the brand and allowing the brand to use that. So, so to me, that's a much healthier model than the model of, okay, I've you've got a bunch of website clicks and a whole, interaction profile that I see, and I'm now going to like look around and see if I can infer what you're interested in. Are you, are you about to get married? Okay, cool. Like, I think I know that. Let me go like ask you a question. You know, that that's that's like a step more on the darker side here. Um, and And I think the conversational technology can help bring all this kind of out into the light. Now, I'd be lying if I said you can't misuse conversational technology. Of course you can. You can misuse really any technology. It's technology. But there is a, a natural aspect to it that allows things to become, I think, more um, uh, upfront on the level and, and and sort of clear in the communication process, more explicit. Uh, that I feel like the older modes of interaction we really didn't have. So we so we anyway to answer to kind of I guess round out the answer to your question, we bundle these things. You know, we bundle aspects of the platform into. You know, sometimes it's about learning what your customers really want from your product and aren't getting. Sometimes it's about learning what's tending to make your customers disloyal. You know, you can do all that from learning from their language. Um, and of course, a lot of what we sell is about, um, you know, trying to get machines to have have conversations with people that are effective and feel good. And, and, you know, that in and of itself, if we can take 10 minutes out of your day where you don't have to... Um, have a frustrating conversation with a customer service agent you've already told the same information to three times and you really can't solve this problem and turn that into a 30-second quick, quick chat with a chatbot that's easy to use and very intuitive, hey, that's a good too. Go play with your kids, you know?
0: Absolutely. And it's really interesting to hear you talk about all these different levels of um, the work that you do. And I, for one, am all for for you being the... I think you said the ballast against the things that are not going quite as well. So um, let me um dig a little bit deeper into live person because I want to ask you about your work on empathic conversational AI. I wonder if you could explain for listeners what that is and why it's an important innovation.
2: Yeah. So I think uh I think the first thing to say about it is that a lot of the conversations we have exist below the surface level of text. So, you know, go, go to an acting class sometime and 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 you'll get an exercise along the lines of, okay, well, let's play these this scene like two entirely different ways, right? And you, you could use sarcasm and subtext and you know go from a, a scene where you might be talking about I. You know how how much one person loves another person. It might it could also be construed as how much one person hates another person, right? Like are the emotional context, the subtext, the um, you know things like especially in a voice medium, things like tone of voice and intonation um, are powerful descriptors and delimiters of meaning. Uh, so so for a system to actually be useful, for a conversational system to actually be useful to us or it will become, maybe I should say it this way, it will become more useful proportionally over time, the better it is at understanding this kind of subtextual information. Um, that is how we communicate, that is how we expect to communicate, that's how we're evolved to communicate. It, it, so it's it's really not just the words. Now, the words are a tremendous step forward from um, you know clicking buttons on a website, right? That's, we're definitely not evolved to communicate that way, Though that itself was better than sitting in a command line and trying to do, you know, DOS operations or something. So I'm, I'm not sort of claiming that the world is, is um, in error. It's just this is the progression. But we believe that uh, the emotional understanding and the, and the subtext, right, that this has to be part of the conversation, we have to learn how to interpret that. And we have to learn if we're right about how we interpret that. Uh, and so a lot of the work we're doing today is really on more on the understanding side. Right. So, so where this starts is, can we effectively, um, you know, can we feel your frustration in the conversation, right? Can we get it? Um, cause I mean, I could have, I could have had my, uh, flight canceled and I could be mildly annoyed by that, that I got to reschedule, but I could really have nothing to do, or I could be on my way home and uh, I haven't seen my kids in a month or, you know, or my, my mom has been injured and I got to get somewhere and, and I'll feel it you know, vastly, di- I'll be in a vastly different emotional space and guess what? It's okay and it's actually probably really good if the airline decides to treat me differently depending on which of those situations I'm in. And sometimes I don't give you explicit si- signals about that situation. Sometimes you have to pick that up from the extra exclamation point or from my tone of voice on the call. So um, so where we are now is I think learning, you know, with, you know, is, is learning to recognize and learning to categorize. There's a sort of challenging, ontological problem of just even, what are the emotional states? Um, and, and how should we look at those? And you know how much of those can we should be categorized versus how much of those should be you know sort of encoded in a machine level understanding, which is a, very similar to a dialogue problem, really. How much of our understanding of what this dialogue is about needs to be explicit so we can control it versus how much of this dialogue, what this dialogue is about can be implicit and encoded in the machine in a way we can't see so that it can act on it in sort of the most appropriate manner as it sees it. Um, so, so I think it's it's you know a lot of this is research questions for us at the moment. There, we've definitely productized pieces of this, but we're trying to productize thoughtfully, simply, and um, and and carefully. Uh, so, so we can identify times when consumers are deeply frustrated. We can identify times when consumers are happy. Um, you know, and and we're kind of beginning to. Uh, build out that battery of emotions that's interesting and, and I think the the other thing so so a lot of that's in the product in the messaging product today. The area that's really interesting to us too is we have um, brought on some companies that are in the voice space and so we're beginning to learn uh, there about the intonation tone of voice those things as emotional indicators well they're they're very powerful um, so kind of early stages I think as far as uh, getting, um, the full vision to market but as far as getting pieces in that that brands can use today, I I think we're we're seeing them appreciate the value of you know the really understand the clarity of how their users feel
1: well, I think this is a uh, really cutting edge really interesting to hear about uh, how you're using AI to understand and be, quote, empathetic. Uh, It also seems very much connected to how we started the conversation, your focus on bias in humans and how that could embed in technology. And so we've been so fortunate to have you as a active participant in the badge program on responsible AI governance that Equal AI launched in collaboration with the World Economic Forum. And I'm curious how the program has impacted your work or your perspective on addressing risks in the AI that you're building and deploying and what have been some of the biggest takeaways for you?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think some of it's the definitely the intangibles around perspective. So I think what it, it can happen, and I think it probably does happen a lot that you have folks working in the scientific disciplines and it, it's difficult to see sort of the full extent, scope and gravity of these issues inside the box, let's say. It, and so for me to see and just to, to even understand the different categories of professionals and policymakers, and how that all starts to fit together, and and and, and what the same object looks like from these different vantage points, right? That's probably the the, the core value for me, and, and I think it is something that should be maybe scaled out more, right? I think I have a lot of colleagues that I that would benefit from. A, a similar situation or or a similar circumstance like this. So so I guess like you know, it's it's I've still kind of taken it all in. but I think I think by and large, the biggest value for me right now has been, you know it's like you came up out of the trees to see the forest a little bit,
0: absolutely. And you know there were so many things that you mentioned in the last in the answers to the last two questions. And I love the idea that we can somehow communicate with the airlines that there are different levels of frustration or any other company for that matter. And fabulous that you're getting so much out of the badge program. And I think that um, what you've said is something that we often hear from, from people who join that work. So continuing the theme of responsible AI, How do you think that Responsible AI governance plays into the development and deployment of conversational AI? And how would you guide others in your field to adopt principles discussed in the program, such as accountability, transparency, and inclusivity, as key elements in creating a more effective AI tool? And um, I will also confess that we have done some work at the forum on um, what are the ethical principles that you want to think about in terms of conversational AI um, when you are going to apply it in healthcare? So very keen to hear your thoughts on this.
2: For me, I think step one is understanding the scope and the impact of the applications of the technology. Um, You know, that's not to say that for some applications, you know, you kind of just want to let AI off the hook or something. But what it is to say is that there are there are applications where the the risk and the benefits are you know vastly different. And, and, I, and I do think a kind of tiered strategy for when do we think about this problem as a you know problem that you, you investigate when you see signals of a problem? versus when do you think about this as a problem where you have a, a high degree of strict regulation on the technology from the beginning, you know, versus kind of gray gray areas or categories in between, I think that has to pivot on what the technology is, is there to do. As you bring up the healthcare, right, That that's obviously one where, where we'd probably have a lot more of a, of a stringent view, you know, right? or at least I think it would make sense to have a lot more of a stringent view around, you know, do we have the, the controls in place and the understanding in place to uh you know to see the problem and to mitigate it. I think there there are some challenges in this field around, you know, the imperfections of machine learned systems that we're going to have to figure out how to cope with, right? So the idea that a system providing healthcare conversations or something might have some level of bias that leads to some level of poorer outcome for some uh, cultural group or ethnic group, and that that level is an acceptable level. Like that's a weird idea. Like that's an idea that makes all of us uncomfortable. But these systems are never going to be perfect. So if the if the if the model is like I can't find a problem of any size here, then we won't ever use the tools. So I think that's a you know the the classic sort of urban meme of there's a certain amount of rat poison allowed in your cereal. It's just a trace amount, right? It's it's kind of one of those like. You know how do we come to how do we come to grips with that one? I think that's an area that we have to kind of think hard about and and think hard about how we debate honestly and openly um, and, and don't kind of like let it devolve into sound bites. I think the other area that's going to be tough along those same lines or it tends to be tough along those same lines is just who are we? like who are the categories of people that we that we feel it's a fair standard or a reasonable standard. To measure, you know, performance and and bias against, right? And that's you know, there's just there's just basic problems of statistics. Like if I, you know, if I allow that to be a completely amorphous definition and allow kind of any definition, you will find statistical anomalies in any system. So so we can't have that, but we also can't have um, systems that are that are biased in ways that we don't like against um, against groups that we agree. Like we have to, you know, be thoughtful about so. I think this is sort of like an offshoot to your question, so I'll try and come back to it, but, but the offshoot, the off-ramp I kind of ended up on here is I worry on some levels about our ability to have a debate that gets us to great answers here because a lot of these subjects are really touchy. And they're touchy for good reasons, right? People throughout history have used rhetoric and language to mistreat other people implicitly, and we shouldn't ignore that, right? That's important but we also still have to decide hard things on the basis of facts. And so we have to kind of, you know, we have to have some of these hard conversations and get into these touchy places and be okay enough with our, the human relationship we're having while we do it, that it doesn't kind of divide us while we do it. Um, And and that, again, back to the social media conversation a little bit, like we're we're in times where it's not easy to to have debates like that and where it's very easy for people to, um, I think, flip to, we're not just having a debate about a topic that's important. You're a bad person. Um, so that's tough. Uh, as far as pract- practical advice, I mean, I think uh, I I love how uh, Miriam set up the equal AI, uh, you know, sort of lens on this from the beginning, which is begin by measuring, right? If you don't know, like there's really, there there isn't anything to do if you don't have a good strategy for how to measure and understand where your systems might have bias. And and frankly, I think that's where most of the field is right now is they, they probably don't have a set of measures. They probably don't have a consistent practice of seeing areas where the systems might be failing them and, and they need to take step one and develop that.
1: Again, you've given us a lot to unpack here and uh, such important points that you've raised. Joe, thank you so much for bringing these up. You talked about measuring. You talked about knowing who we test for and the sensitivities and even having that conversation. You have historical biases that you have to account for and know that it will both bring up sensitivities and it will bring up biases in your data based on these historical discriminatory outcomes. You mentioned that the systems will never be perfect. And so we have to contend with this very challenging premise of how much rat poisoning will we allow in our cereal? I think that's just a great way to put it because that is the bottom line. And, and you know, even to add another nuance on it, if you're talking about bias in artificial intelligence, you could even argue that it's it's a vitamin or mineral that could have right. a poisonous content. because. You use bias to help you answer the question, to help you navigate the algorithm towards a particular output outcome recommendation. You want to make sure it's not a harmful bias. Uh, And again, back to that premise of who are we trying to protect? When you're looking at a specific AI system, is it everyone in the world? Is it known customers? Is it potential customers? I mean, you've got an entire universe out there and you'll have different answers depending on how you frame this question. And I don't pretend it's an easy one. And it's certainly not one that we should just put to all the computer programmers and developers to answer on their own. It's just unfair. Um, and which is why- And I they love- may
2: not do it, right? That's the other problem is like, you may you may be waiting for that phone call for a long time. <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt you too, but like I, I can't help myself because you, you like the way you said it just, just I, I wanted to build on what you said like the the other piece here is how much rat poison is already in the cereal, right? So so do we even understand fully well, like, let's take the medical establishments. We understand the full scope of we know there's bias there around medical studies and around the peer-reviewed journals and and around health outcomes for different ethnicities like that that's a known problem. So you know, is that so you start having debates like well if if the if the AI conversations are like a little better than that bias, like is that good enough? You know that, that like anyway. Uh-huh. No, you're
1: absolutely right. I'm so glad you jumped in. And I think you're you raise an important point. I and mean, we talk about the sensitivities of the use and that the, the regulation or the guidance for that AI should be dependent upon the sensitivity of that use. On the other hand, yes, if you're talking about a healthcare application as to who will have a healthcare benefit, who will have access to a service, what that services how it is used on a patient, absolutely, we're talking about high risk. On the other hand, if you're talking about who has access to easily facilitate a conversation, to get home when they're stuck in an airport? If you're one of the no. tens of thousands of people stuck at Heathrow who cannot find your way home, what if you're an unaccompanied minor? What if you're elderly? What if you have you know, a mobility device? Uh, having that conversation, if you have a speech impediment and you have to access uh, a conversational AI that has trouble hearing, understanding you, if you speak a language for which it wasn't trained, there are so many ways where even in a context that seems less potentially grave, it can be serious when deployed in different situations where, uh, you know, unexpected outcomes uh, or uses come into play.
2: Agreed. I, I think I think it's a really good point. That's a great example to tease apart, too, because it's like what you do there, in my opinion, and, and I don't know how like I'm, this is an open opinion, right? Like I'm sort of I'm sort of open to being challenged and being wrong with this opinion. But but my starting point would be something like, well, like, what are the standards for the airline's communication requirements in general in, in a situation like that? Like, what do we expect of airlines to, to handle uh, in terms of people who have, you know, disabilities of some kinds, right? What do we expect for them to handle in terms of language support? Do we expect them to have a CS agent on staff that speaks, you know, which languages do we expect them to speak and when are they kind of out of compliance, right? And And I feel like, you know, if if we start from there, like one of two things will happen. We'll either realize we don't have a model that we need for what good enough is for that situation. And then we need to go get that. And that's a sort of relevant for the AI, but also an independent problem of the AI. Or we'll realize that we have a model there. And we know, I think, a lot about how we want to hold the AI accountable in that situation. And in that one, like I think, you know, th- that would be a good candidate for this gray area of... Like when you know maybe that's one I don't know but maybe that's one where you locate the problem on when the problem occurs to a customer and when somebody tweets about like hey I nobody speaks Spanish in London or I can't I can't talk to the airline in Spanish in London like what that makes no sense uh, maybe that's like your input and maybe that's more of an enforcement of policy and less of a regulation of um, technology you know a priori. I don't know. It's just like, i mean, a random thought, but I I think those are the right questions. That's the right debate to have.
1: Absolutely. And I know the regulation and policy debate is not a place where you commonly uh, put your thoughts and and, um, focus on extensively, but you're obviously a very deeply thoughtful person. You've talked about in some areas, we do need strict regulation on tech. You, and you've talked about you know, different use cases where it, it is of got greater consequence. And you've also mentioned that there are some laws on the books that are applicable in different situations. And let's make sure that AI doesn't pull them out of that realm, that it should be applied consistently, whether it's an AI-based recommendation or human. Hopefully it'll be some combination of the two. but. In your work, is there a way that policymakers could support what you are doing? Or do you find there's a way that current laws or potential laws like those we've talked about in the badge program are impeding your work?
2: That's a, such a good question. And it's a tough one because like the definition of help and impede, right? Is you know, if I, if I'm from a tactical vantage point of, does it make it easier for me to train a model tomorrow? right? There's a kind of helping and impeding there. And on that, like something like GDPR is an impediment because I can't look at data. I can't have anyone in the U.S. look at any data from anyone in the U.K., even a data scientist who just kind of wants to read a couple lines of conversation and figure out if the model's making sense, which probably may not be the spirit of GDPR. I don't know. But so there but then there's also like a you know like i sort of want to help my higher self too right i sort of want to hold i want systems that hold me accountable to working in a way that 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 doesn't go down these kind of darker alleys because i think that's that's probably part of um that's probably part of not ending up in in maybe the social media trap and behavioral like issues that that we discussed earlier in the conversation like. I guess I'm gonna to amount to a, a kind of like lousy answer to this question because it, it sort of amounts to like it depends a little bit. Um, I do worry that it's very hard to regulate across many industries at the same time and do that in a way that helps anybody do anything for any aim. Like I, I just think that is that is a you know abstraction at that level and the, and the level of difference between different businesses and how they work is is hard. Um, I don't think that means the answer is don't regulate or don't or don't have standards at all i just think you know, i guess the i guess i have two thoughts one is the state of politics is such that i get really nervous that we're going to be able to do anything very well because we're having trouble bringing in this country anyway we're having trouble bringing enough people with different perspectives together in the political landscape to solve real problems so, so that worries me I think. Secondly, I lost my train of thought, so maybe I'll stop there. Sorry, it'll probably come back in a minute.
1: Well, firstly, it was worth it.
2: Good. Uh, Thanks nice uh, for me to say.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah, I guess I wanted
2: to say one quick thing. Like, like part of this, I think, is us having conversations or doing the the program that the the badge program that you have and bringing people like me who don't have a lot of experience in policy and a lot of experience in you know regulatory frameworks or anything like that into discussions because. Because I think it's one of those things where like, I, I know I have a lot of imaginings about how all this stuff works and, and probably a lot of those imaginings are ham-fisted and incorrect. And, and through having conversations with people like you and people from the badge um, program can start to see how like the world actually works. Um, so, so I think we kind of need more of that and a little bit more, um, let's say cross-disciplinary collaboration to, to start to get some of this stuff right.
0: Absolutely. And I'm sure that you will know that both Miriam and I agree entirely that cross-disciplinary conversation is actually so important. But also, you know, the BADGE program brings together people who are all struggling with some of the same problems. And so giving you that peer group as well, um, we, we hope, is extremely helpful. So we close every show with this sort of one question. If you had a magic wand to achieve this sort of one wish to help us achieve responsible AI, what would your wish be?
2: I mean, one answer to that, we've kind of already maybe maybe beat that horse pretty dead a little bit, which is the, the politics and the debate side of this. So I, I'll, I'll give you another one too, but I think probably my first answer in a lot of ways is there's a legitimate, I think, major issue in the country, which is or not just an issue among the politicians, but also an issue amongst the population. How easy it is for us to talk to each other, debate, work based off facts and learn from each other and, and not devolve into um, hatred and you know uh, becoming a bunch of ideologues. like so so that's probably the the wand I would wave for this and many other problems if I could wave one. Um, as far as technology wise, I I think I think there is some really interesting stuff going on right now around like like I think we're going to be in this world soon where, we're talking to a lot more of these like black box end-to-end models than we are today, right? Which like today, when you go and talk to your Amazon device your Google device or your Apple device, you're essentially talking to a set of rules that are gonna have this dialogue with you in a structured way that is like where you could literally like write out all the rules if you wanted to. Tomorrow, we will be talking to systems where all of that knowledge is now embedded in a bunch of learned, you know, weights of a neural network somewhere. Uh, And that's a very different uh, model and a very difficult model. And the reason we haven't seen it yet, even though these, this technology is incredible, is because it's a very difficult model to control. Um, and, and there's some very interesting research coming out now around um, beginning to kind of probe and test models like this and, and and identify their failings. Some of it goes under the name of Red Teaming. Uh, there's NYU group that, that did a nice paper on this, where they actually build models whose job it is to try and get these other models to like say racist things and things like that. So, so you know, the, one of the ones I would raise is I think we probably need to to up the wattage on that level of research and on that type of research. Like I think we're kind of stuck with these, with these um, end end black box models. Which this is what I, what I mean when I say they start to look a lot like humans. Like we have the same problem. Like our brains have been trained to behave a certain way and. And it's not, you know, we can answer questions about why we behave the way that we do, but we actually really mostly are wrong um, and and we're motivated by factors that we don't see too clearly. Uh, So the models will be the same way, right? The AI will will be fundamentally, unless technology magically changes and it seems unlikely that it will, uh, it'll be in the same position where you can interrogate it and you can teach it, but you can't know it to the level that we think we want to. You're gonna only be able to know it to about the level that you can kind of know a human. Uh, And and so so I think the research that is pointed at understanding, knowing, and training these systems uh, against bad outcomes vis-a-vis, you know, let's say bias, uh, those are like, that's a research arm that we should probably, you know, 10x kind of fast.
1: Well, hopefully those policymakers are listening and and, uh, others who can effectuate your goals and Uh, And I think all of our listeners will really benefit from the broad perspective you shared with us today um, and the deep psychological understanding of the interconnectedness between humans, our own feelings and the technology that we're using. So, Joe, I'm so grateful you joined us today and I look forward to continuing our conversation.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. It's been a blast to talk to you guys and you know, deepest respect for everything you're doing. Thank you so much for doing it. Thank you.
0: Well, wasn't that Fun, As you said in the intro, you know, what a thoughtful person and how diverse his background, I love non, non-linear careers, you know, the fact that he could process it and recognise that it brought so him so much diversity of discussion and thinking that he's now able to apply in his work today. So I think that was my first takeaway. I've got some others, but why don't you share some of yours?
1: Certainly. Yeah. I share your enthusiasm for his broad lens and his deep curiosity. He started with talking about scientific exceptionalism, and I really throughout the discussion was interpreting what that was and and how it is a fundamental issue that we need to be thinking about when talking about AI governance, as well as the deep connections he continually made between AI and humanity the biases, the patterns, the risks, the benefits, just embracing them as not inherently good or bad, but both, as well as the interconnectedness between one another and how we can serve each other, disadvantage each other. He gave several instances in uh, airports and healthcare and social media, really thinking of how it can facilitate humanity, impede humanity or our daily experience. Also, deep thought he's given to empathy and how it can be applied to artificial intelligence. I'm just wrapping my brain around how an AI can pick up sarcasm, emotional content to read the sentence in the way it's intended. Uh, you know, obviously, I'm I'm so glad that he's participating in our badge program and we can think through what is the responsible way to handle that tremendous responsibility, frankly, of of understanding and, and telling the computer how to interpret these conversations in order to prepare its responses and be helpful. Uh, what were some of the big takeaways for you?
0: Yeah, so I actually liked the fact that he had that historical perspective as well and started with the the Sears catalog. So, I, you know, just as a grounding to some of his thoughts on, on the work that he's doing and how just something as non-technological but useful as that can help us with framing some of our thoughts. I loved the fact that he said he wanted to be the ballast against um, some of the more extreme uses of AI that are troubling for our society and the way that we live our lives. I think that everybody who's working in his sort of job in AI should actually have that perspective. (laughs) And I liked the fact that, uh, which I suppose goes with that, that at the end he said, you know, operationally GDPR is a bit of bind, but he wants to be held to that higher standard. And, you know, what a super thing to say. And again, if we could get everybody to actually adopt that perspective, we would have a race to the top rather than a race to the bottom.
1: You're so right. When he broke apart the question of what is good and bad, what is benefiting his work? Is it that day how he structures and tests the algorithm? Because in that way, regulation may be impeding him. But when he talks about his work as benefiting the higher self and avoiding the dark alleys, You know, even when we're talking about benefiting and impeding, you have to add that lens of to what end? What are you going to try and facilitate and operationalize and impact with your regulations? In the same way that he brought that thoughtful lens to our discussion about technology and regulation and the basic fundamentals that technology will never be perfect. And this will always be a challenging conversation because Mm -hmm. of that fundamental truth, as well as the fact that you're touching on very difficult subjects. Mm -hmm. Um, So while this is a key conversation we have, I'm so glad he brought to light some of the sensitivities we need to be mindful of when we approach these conversations.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, But you know, we talk to these fabulous people, but I think we also have to remind ourselves that behind these fabulous people are their C-suite who are actually supporting their work and enabling them to behave in that responsible AI perspective. And so we need to, I think, give credit to these people who have understood how vital responsible AI is to their business.
1: That's such a great point, Kay, that We are able to have this conversation with Joe because he is allowed to have that conversation. Nobody told him what he could or couldn't talk about, uh, how he is to approach his work. He's allowed and, in fact, invited to ask these difficult questions, whether it's on our podcast or in his work. And you're right. That is a tribute to the C-suite that has set that environment, the culture that we're often talking about and building that trust so that Joe knows that he is allowed and expected to have these very open conversations. conversations. Uh, Great point and great conversation. I can't wait for our next one.
0: Absolutely. I'll see you soon, Miriam. Subscribe to or download our podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. We always welcome your feedback. And if you like the podcast, please rate us or give us a review. To learn more or get involved, visit us at www.equalai.org and www.weforum.org.
1: And a special thanks to NP Agency, without whom this podcast would not be possible.